Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. If you've been to the theater, you understand there's a certain kind of magic that happens when the performance unfolds on stage. I'm misrepresenting things to them. I don't tell the truth. I tell them all to be the truth. And if that is simple, then let me be damned. Does you think I had dreams and hopes? What about my life? What about me? To be or not to be, that is the question. But before Hamlet could pose that iconic question, the line began as a thought in the mind of a playwright. This is the latest installment of our Ask A series. That's where we bring together a panel of guests working the same job to tell us about their lives, their work, and to answer your questions. For this episode, we're asking playwrights about how they do what they do. Though, unfortunately, William Shakespeare was unavailable to join us. After the break, we meet our playwrights and answer your questions. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with more in just a moment. This episode's sponsor is PWC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge. Reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Let's welcome our panel of playwrights. With us is Karen Zacharias. She's an award-winning playwright. She joins us in studio. Karen, welcome to the program. Hello. Good to see you. Also with us is Sama Yeni, 24, in studio. He's a playwright, actor, and award-winning director. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And James Imes joins us from Philly. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, educator, and director. James, it's great to have you. Hey, good to be here. Okay, so I'm thinking back to fifth grade in elementary school when I wrote a play um, for our spring <laughs> our spring concert. It didn't have a very clearly defined end, but that was my one and only foray into playwriting. But Karen, what was your first experience with playwriting? Uh, my first experience with playwriting was when I moved here from Mexico as a, a 10-year-old year old girl, and there was a bully that was um, saying mean things to me, and I could never, never come up with a very good response. So I went back home 
and wrote a dialogue uh, that what I would say next time he said. And then as the, I was writing the dialogue, I was like, why is this boy being mean to me? Maybe, maybe his dad isn't nice to him. And I made up this amazing backstory for him. And so playwriting became a way of, of navigating this new country and this new world, a way of having control of my story and being able to talk with a protagonist. So it, 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 was a, it, it became a, a, a tool for me um, as an immigrant here. I love that. James, what about for you? When I was about, uh, I guess, maybe 14 or 15, my grandmother encouraged me to write a play for church. And for a long time, that was just, and, you know, that's what I thought I was going to do with that. That's how that was going to function in my life. It wasn't something that I thought I was going to do for a living. But, you know, to to sort of piggyback on Karen, it has become a way for me to metabolize how I'm feeling about the world and the politics of the world and how I sit inside of the world. So, um, yeah, it started out kind of as like the thing I could do at church and has now become like the greatest blessing of my life. Psalm, and for you, your first experience playwriting? Yeah, I actually started out as an actor, and I was really disappointed with the types of roles that I saw available for black men. I felt like they didn't really uh, hold my humanity and my dignity in ways that I thought were valid. So I decided to co-write a play with a woman by the name of Tony Blackman. So this was like a hip-hop-infused uh, play, and then I kept writing from there. James, in addition to playwriting, you've also participated in writers' rooms for television. How is the playwriting experience unique as an art form? Um, I, I think I can talk better about it, like what's different about TV. Like what's mm-hmm. different about TV is that you don't have to have all the answers. <laughs> okay. okay. There's a room full of people that are like, oh, I think this, and... Um, it's truly collaboration. And, you know, most of my career as a playwright, I've, you know, it's me and my computer and my thoughts and and my hands. Um, And so that's the big distinction for me is that you're writing in community with other people. And I think playwriting is about gathering community around an idea. Hmm. Karen, how do you know when an idea is worth pursuing? Because as with your first experience, it started off as this one conversation, uh, preparing yourself to <laughs> respond to your bully, but it turned into something more. Yes. I mean, whenever uh, whenever the question, whenever you have a question that you can't answer and you keep niggling in your brain, and so you're cooking and you're like, oh, wh- wh- what what is going on with this fight between neighbors, for example, and how, how would I resolve that? I think every good piece of art is always an artist trying to answer an unanswerable question, something that they're always... Uh, weighing back and forth because the answer changes. It changes on context and circumstance. So it's those things that you kind of can't let go and you start seeing images in your brain. Mm. I'm curious to hear from each of you how you know when you're the right person or not the right person to tell a particular story. Because, Sam, you said as an actor you were unhappy with the types of roles you had available to you as a, as a black actor. But when do you come up with an idea and say, this is a great idea, but this isn't, this isn't for me to tell? Yeah, well, if it's uh, something that, I, that I'm not passionate about, then I know that it's not my story to tell. But if there's an idea that sort of, you know, grabs you by the collar and really takes hold of your soul in a way that you can't, let go and in a way that just won't let you, you know, rest, um, 
then I think that's the type of story that's for me to tell. And uh, if it's something that I feel like I need to sort of, I, I have to write a play in order to alchemize my feelings around it, then I know that this is the story that I'm supposed to tell. Mm. Well, a member of the 1A Text Club writes, I recently wrote a short novel, and many people who have read it suggest that it would make a good play. But what makes a good play? And I know this is very subjective, so I want to hear from each of you, Karen. To your mind, what what makes a play good? Um, There's a crystallizing moment of choice for the characters that feels true. And that's, I mean, so a good play can be short, it can be long, but there's a moment where there's an authentic moment of truth. It can be funny, but there's a moment where there's a character making a choice that sends you into a thought about whether you would make the same choices or not. That's Mm -hmm. what I find a compelling play. Some? Yeah, I'll add to that and say that it has to work in the ritual of being alive and being mm-hmm. on a stage and with an audience. So there are lots of material that, you know, work great on the page, but when you put the words up on their feet, it, they just, it just doesn't work. So there's something about sort of how the words land. For me, it has a lot to do about like language and the ideas and the movement and sort of how all the production elements come together to hold this, this story. That's what makes a story work on stage. I'm going to circle back to something you just said, but James, from you, what do you think makes a play good? All of what's been said is all very true. And, you know, to add a little bit of that to that is there there needs to be an event, like a, a feeling of occasion um, to make it a play, I think. Like we have to, there has to be sort of uh, the play and the log line and the thinking about the play at the theater should have a bit of anticipation and like you got to be there. So there, there's an eventness to it that I think is is key. Sam, you use the word ritual when describing theater. What what do you mean? Well, when people come together to listen to a story, uh, there's something magical that happens. It becomes more than just, you know, words that were written down on paper. But there's a spiritual aspect to theater in my eyes that we really tap into. And that spiritual aspect for me is present. Even when you're writing, you're sort of in communication with this force that is greater than you, and um, you're you're listening, or at least I'm trying to listen to what this story wants to be as much as possible. I try to get out of the way and sort of let the spirit enter the room. Like there's uh, there's some uh, quote that musicians say, like you have to leave space for God in the room. So you can't kind of get too busy. Uh, but yeah, there's certainly that sort of spiritual aspect to, to theater that, that I really uh, love. We're going to take a quick pause here. Back with more in a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. 
In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to our latest installment of Ask A. Today, we're asking a playwright. Now, James, your play, Fat Ham, is a modern take on Shakespeare's Hamlet, set in the South at a backyard barbecue. It closed on Broadway earlier this year. It also won a Pulitzer and was nominated for five Tony Awards. Let's hear a bit from the play. I want to talk to you. About what? Your daddy. My daddy is dead. You know what I'm talking about. The king, my queen, is dead. Huh? It's Shakespeare. Kind of. You watch too much PBS. <laughs> How can one watch too much PBS? You don't need to know all that. Yeah, it's harmless. Whatever. You need to stop going red. I didn't do nothing to him. That little charade trick you pulled. No, I pulled a slip from the bowl just like everyone else. You're upsetting him. He didn't seem upset to me. Well, he was. Just be nice to him. Oh, how nice the quarrel was. What? It's Shakespeare. If you bring up that dead or white man one more time. James, how did you draw inspiration from your life when you were crafting Fat Ham? I mean, I grew up in the South. I grew up in a, a big, loud, uh, loving uh, family. And um, I wanted to write a version of that play that sounded like the people that were in the community that I grew up in and in my family. And when I started to apply, you know, that language and that music and the speaking to the story of Shakespeare, it worked. It worked, you know, as well as the verse and the Shakespeare. So that taught me something about the beauty of um, of the way the, the people that you grow around, grow up around speak and, and the beauty that that, that holds. Yeah. Sam, you mentioned providing space to let a story reveal what it wants to be. How does that dynamic work when you're talking about characters and who they want to be? Sure. Uh, you you listen as much as possible. Sometimes uh, when I'm writing, I might actually say the words out loud and start improvising. I think that's where my experience as an actor is helpful in terms of my writing. But I think in, in general, uh, I, I believe, like, I think it was Michelangelo who said, I... I just I carve the block of marble until I free the angels. So the the play or the characters in my mind are already there. It's just a matter of me freeing them and letting them uh, free into the world. And, and so James, in a in a play like Fat Ham, where you're drawing on your lived experiences and and the people around you, 
is there ever a thought in your mind like, oh, that character is a little bit too much like Auntie. Let me let me make some tweaks so she doesn't recognize herself on stage. Very much so. I <laughs> I handle like any sort of like witticism or things from my family or even just like manners of speaking with a great deal of care because I don't want to write, you know, folks into a play that don't want to be in a play. And so I try to, you know, fictionalize it and, and open it up as much as possible. And And Karen, for you... When you're crafting a character, how much do you need to know up front about who they are? Or, or does their story reveal itself to you over time? I've, I've had both things where a character has shown up full-fledged, ready to have coffee with me and talk to me about what is going on with her life. And then there are those um, where you are crafting and adding lines. I mean, sometimes I sit down and write dialogue without knowing which character is saying it. Mm-hmm. And that's a way of kind of digging yourself. You know, like I write dialogue and then there's like, oh, this character is this. So what I find so interesting about our profession is that no one play goes goes is the same way like what sometimes they're born just like you they pour out of you and sometimes it's like pulling teeth to bring things out and how humbling this this career is because you're never an expert Mm. Um, you may have craft but the inspiration and all of that need to come together in this alchemy to bring it together so i i love our profession but it humbles me every day we hear from another member of our tax club who writes i'm a playwright it's really hard to get plays mounted on stage especially now post pandemic. It's also really hard to make any money if you're not famous, which I'm not, despite having been produced quite a bit. You have to decide, do I love doing this? Is this how I want to communicate? And if the answer is yes, then you do it no matter what. That's why I'm a playwright. Just quick round robin. James, how does that resonate with you? Yeah, I mean, I've, I have always had a day job and I still have a day job. And, and, and someone might call me famous. Mm-hmm. So, five Tony I, yeah, nominations. You know, so, like, I, I do think that, um, but I also think that working makes, you know, teaching or acting or whatever it is that you're doing, that feeds you as a writer. And so I always want to be in the world in a way that is not theater. Like, I don't want to only be in the theater because I think that cuts off uh, my ability to see how people are in other parts of our society. And so I, I've always had some sort of job to support what it is that I want to do. That's so interesting because I often hear people talk about careers in a binary. It's like, well, I, I can't have a real job because then I can't really pursue my art. Or, you know, the arts, it's not going to be, it's not going to sustain me. So I've got to have a real, a quote unquote, real job. But James, what I'm, what I'm hearing from you is that you found a way past that binary. How? Um, I didn't didn't care what other people thought. (laughs) (laughs) I really wanted to like, I I mean, I wanted to do things on my own terms. You know, I had in my head this notion that I wanted my work as a playwright to really be free of, of other people's sort of discovery of me as a writer. Like I wanted to be able to say that I like, you know, worked really hard and, and found ways to, to make away from myself. And a lot of, how the beginning of my career was, was a lot of self-producing, a lot of making the plays happen on my own terms. And so then when I get to this point in my career, I I look back and I go like, I, you know, I had a lot of help, but I did a lot of work to get to the place where I am. We got this question from a member of our tax club who writes, do you write the plot, then put in stage directions later, or do you write them at the same time? 
some what is that process like in your it it varies from play to play to to be honest with you i've recently started uh having an idea of where my play will end with the past couple of plays that I've written. And then there are times when I'll just start writing and then I'll just go wherever the muse takes me and wherever that play wants to go and what the journey wants to be is what it'll be. Uh, so each play for me sort of has its own uh, roadmap and sort of blueprint in terms of how it's going to be built. That that takes us to uh, the question we're seeing quite a bit about structure how do you create the, the the structure of the play? So Mark in Zephyr Hills, Florida says, do you start writing already knowing the ending? Do you then write to get to the ending you have already planned? If so, how often do you stick with the planned ending? Or do you often change it to the storyline as it is developing? <laughs> Karen? All of the above. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, the question about uh, stage directions is that in the sense you're world building, that's what playwrights do. We're creating a world. And in this world, we're moving things around and trying to find the main action. What's the main question? What it is it that they want? And as a, a playwriting teacher, even with very young people, it's always like, uh, what is it that your character wants and what's in the way of them getting it? It's that, that simple. And, uh, and that complicated at the same time. Mm. James, what about for you? Yeah, I'm, it's different for every play. I mean, I don't have children yet, um, but I imagine it's a lot like, you know, you give birth to these kids and then they start to become things and you're people and you're like, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> so I imagine, I mean, that that's a little bit what it feels like. I've, you know, I've seen a few different productions of, of a bunch of my plays and it's always like that. That is a very different child, but mm-hmm. that's my child, mm-hmm. you know. Well, another member of our text club asks, how do you take current events and write them into a play but make them stand the test of time? And John in Maryland emails, please ask the playwrights about the balance of entertainment, humor, and politics in their plays. I've had the delightful experience of seeing Karen's and Psalm's plays, and I'm impressed at how engaging and political their plays are. Psalm, I'll come to you first on that. How are you thinking about the integration of politics into your work? work and knowing that it it will stand over time it has to feel organic for me so if there's a political issue that I'm particularly interested in or moved by then you know it will be in the play but first and foremost it's like you you have to keep the audience engaged if they're not engaged they're not gonna listen uh so that that is sort of paramount to me, I mean, but you also want to give them that, you know, that sustenance and give them some meat along with the dessert. So, I mean, it's a it's a full course meal that that you're trying to serve. And Karen, what about for you? How do you think about that balance between the political message, perhaps some humor, drama? It's it's like throwing a dinner party. It's, you know, you want to make sure you have all the courses there that you're not, you're, that, that you also, as a writer, have to live with it every day. You're writing this. And so if you're just focused on the, there's a difference between focusing on the news and focusing on the politic behind the news. Mm-hmm. And if you focus on the politic behind the news, you probably will write a play that will not feel dated a couple of months later or years later because those those elements are always there. But if you focus on one event, then you might fall into that trap. And so it, it's about it's it's about balance and, you know, finding that sometimes humor is 
more effective in getting people to listen than, um, than a soliloquy, for example. We're going to head to a quick break, but we'll be back with more of your questions in just a moment. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit bluehost.com. This message comes from Schwab. It's easy to invest in ideas you believe in with Schwab Investing Themes, like online music and videos, artificial intelligence, and electric vehicles. Choose from over 40 customizable themes. More at schwab.com. Let's get back to playwriting with this message we got from Randy in Nebraska. There is a production of To Kill a Mockingbird touring the country right now with Richard Thomas as the lead. When he gives his closing argument as Atticus Finch in the courtroom in the second act, it is so incredible, it stops the play cold. It is a combination of his talent with the writing talent of Aaron Sorkin, who has rewritten the script. It is truly a tick in the book of life. Randy, thanks for that message. Karen, you've written several plays derived from novels, most recently a play inspired by Jack Schaefer's classic Western novel, Shane. What are the challenges of adapting a play from a book? Uh, First of all, it's taking something that's two-dimensional, that's a relationship with just the reader and making it. I mean, it's where the right, the W-R-I-G-T of playwriting comes in. You're making into a a three-dimensional object, a living, breathing thing that has to tell the story. Uh, And so that is a very big challenge, first and foremost. And the other one is competing with everybody else's image of what reading that book or seeing that movie is um, and bringing in a point of view that might be different and uh, was, you know, unique to my experience. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of expectations that surround the adaptation of a book. I'm curious whether that experience, I don't want to say is more challenging, but whether there's something a little wistful about it because the story isn't coming to you in the same way, that the characters aren't necessarily revealing themselves to you in the same way because there's already a, a sort of template that exists in the form of this this book. Uh, it's a little bit like um, be, uh, being a curator for an idea that started, but then it has to become your own. Mm-hmm. So my Shane is not Jack Schaefer's Shane. Uh-huh. And so my Shane is uh, an African-American Shane. My family is a Latino family up in Wyoming. So that was my version of Shane. When I read the book, that's what came to my mind. And so, yes, Jack Schaefer opened the door for my imagination, and I grabbed that horse to use it and, <laughs> and rode it to a different sunset. Some you've written several plays that reimagine the lives of notable figures from history, including the production you're working on now. It's about the life of the late Democratic congressman and civil rights activist John Lewis. How does writing plays about real people differ from writing plays with imagined characters? Well, you have to deal with your respect for these people. Uh, with imagined characters, you can sort of do what you want with them when there's no consequences. But with the real people, I mean, you sort of have a responsibility to their legacy in certain ways. And then you will have people who 
you know, know them or knew them and may, you know, have very strong feelings about how they should be portrayed. So there's a different level of responsibility that I feel when I'm writing um, about characters or people who who actually existed. We got this comment from one of you. One element I always hear missing from these conversations is that of the designers. It's often the designers who have to tightly collaborate and begin the storytelling before the actor even steps on stage. They define the where, when, and what of the scene, from the choices of the set designer to the timing and look of the lighting design to the intricate nuances of the costumes. And Dillian emails, as a theater technician, my question is, how much do you consider technical elements while writing? James, I'll come to you first. A lot. Um, I, if I had to do it all over again in my education, I would have studied scenic design mm. or lighting design. Um, I think the, the designer's ability to read a play and render the world in three dimensions is magic. And so I, I, tr- I try to write towards them. I try to, I call it the whisper. Like, what can I say in this text what can I suggest in this play that gives us, you know, a sound designer, a costume designer, um, um, a lighting designer, and a set designer enough sort of material to sort of build their world on without being utterly prescriptive about the wall is green, there's a copy of Catcher in the Rye on the bookshelf, there's a steaming cup of coffee on the coffee table. I don't need to do all of that. But if I say something that sort of evokes the quality of all those things and I write a character that we go, oh, they would definitely read Catcher in the Rye, that leaves enough space for them to sort of make the real decisions that they want to make as designers. I think about designers constantly while I'm writing. Karen, what about you? Absolutely. It's part of that world building. I mean, when we were talking about the stage directions, if your play is very fluid, you bring that into it. So you're imagining the idea of of movement coming in, of a director coming in. if, If there's a, the idea of color changing something in the scene. I mentioned that. And as, as James was saying, it's you, you hint at it, you whisper at it so that other people's stronger, better imagination than mine can take over. But it's part of the, of the world building. So I think about design, I think about tone, and I think about fluidity all the time when I'm writing a play. I want to refer to something James mentioned, which is, you know, you have that initial first staging of the play, but then you may (laughs) go back and see a production of your work in different spaces, and and you didn't have the opportunity to collaborate with the director, with the designers, with the actors in the same way. Some, how do you, I I suppose, create some space between yourself and an interpretation of your work that doesn't necessarily resonate with what you have in in your heart? You have to just let it go. I mean, and to go back to the metaphor of, you know, plays being like children. I mean, once your child leaves the nest, I mean, you have instilled hopefully certain principles and morals and values. And then they're they're going to do what they're going to do. So you kind of have to um, say, okay, well, this this was that interpretation and it was different than I imagined. Hopefully it's better than you imagined it because that sometimes happens too. But uh, yeah, you just have to know that you have to let let go of the reins and and let those wild horses run, you know. (laughs) Well, Charlie in DC emails, I know that playwrights work very, very closely with the directors of their plays. What are the best and worst moments that your three talented playwrights have had with directors of their shows? So 
no need to mention names or, or anything, but Karen, in terms of the really good experiences and the ones that were a little less positive, what shapes the way that relationship goes? Uh, you know, it, working with a director who has the same vision that's looking in the same direction that you do is is paramount because you can work with a really good director, but they think they're telling a different story than you are. That's where there can be... Uh, Tension, but when you're both uh, building together and going, oh, what about this? What about that? And suddenly the director says, what about putting a song here? And you're like, yes. Uh, so that's really, really exciting. And it it just has to be about that you both understand. You're both in agreement about what you think this production is going to say about you know the world. James, what what have you done when that vision didn't align? How have you navigated that space? I talk through it. I mean, I think the director playwright relationship is really intimate. It's 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 like dating somebody. Mm-hmm. And um you you have to learn how to talk to each other. You have to learn how to hold each other accountable. And so like I I've developed over time. Early on in my career I was like, "Oh, I can't say anything because I want people to like do my work." And I've had I've had enough experiences of like oh, if you don't say something, they don't know how you feel and you can't say something about it later. So now I try to be as upfront about how I'm feeling about that stuff. And I haven't really had an experience with a director yet where they were like, I don't care what you think. (laughs) You know, they usually are like, oh, I hadn't thought about it that way or I didn't see it that way. Um, So I, you know, I, I try to treat it as a, you know, a friendship. And so friendships require a lot of grace. Tom, what about for you? Yeah, I think uh, communication is key and just being honest and uh, respectful about how you feel about, you know, certain moments. I mean, I've, I've also been pretty lucky in that the directors who've directed my plays have, you know, we've had excellent rapports. Uh, so I haven't really had too many bad experiences, but uh, there are difficult moments that you have to confront in a rehearsal room. And as long as people are respectful and, you know, kind, then I think things tend to end up all good. I'm wondering how each of you are thinking about the function and future of theater in our modern world. We're in this time when people are choosing to stay home and just, you know, stream whatever service they have rather than go into that shared space and have this communal communal experience of of art. James, how are you how are you thinking about the future of theater? It's a really old art form. So I, I think we're we're gonna be okay, and we have gone through lean times and 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 fabulous times in in the duration of the art form. Um, I think we we can't compete with people sitting on their couch and watching a streamer. So we should do something different. Our work shouldn't in no way look like something you could see on Netflix, um, and our work in the theater should be something that requires you to be in community with other people in order to fully experience it. And I actually think that we stand to benefit in this moment because people are so used to these sort of short bursts of pleasure. And if we give people this sort of long extended experience of pleasure with other people, which is a thing that I think is missing from the society is this collective effervescence. When we used to all go to church, we don't have it anymore. And the theater is a space in which people can actually have that and probably be pretty safe in getting it. So I think if we begin to capitalize on that, I hate to use the word capital, but you know, lean into that, um, that that's going to set us apart 
Salman and Karen, I'd love to hear from you each on this as well. Yeah, James said it. I mean, theater is a resilient art form. Theater is one of the few art forms that has survived multiple pandemics. So, you know, we're not, you know, um, we're we're not an art form that's not used to tough times. Uh, but yeah, I I, I think um, you know, theater uh, theater will will survive. Karen, you get the last word. Yes, it's it's not just the story. It's the experience of being alive in a room together with your fellow human beings and knowing that collectively you can do better as a group than by yourself. And I think we need to fight that isolation, and theater does that. That's award-winning playwright Karen Zacharias. We were also joined by Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright, educator, and director James Imes, and award-winning director, actor, and playwright Samayeni24. Karen, James, Sam, thank you so much. This was great. Today's producers were Lauren Hamilton and Jorgelina Manarea. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.